Ammo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. Sadanto suche do ye ulahudi san miao san putoshi. Namo sadanto suche do ye ulahudi san miao san putoshi. Wushang shen shen the unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I have come to receive and hold it within my sight and hearing, I vow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Venerable Master, friends in the Dharma, welcome to our Sutra Lecture tonight. Uh, this is the 24th of October, and we are here at the Berkeley Monastery. We're explaining the Ten Grounds chapter of the Flower Adornment Sutra, and everybody needs one of these booklets in front of you, please. And we're going to begin with uh, reciting the name of the Sutra, and then the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas, the sages who uh, appear follow the sutra and that's on the front cover so if you'll find the front of your text and we'll begin Namo Oh, 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 oh. 
Please open your text to page 70 and 71. Everybody have one? Some of the booklets didn't get the last installment. So if you don't have 70 or 71, you need to get another copy. Okay, now, last week, Marty, Professor Verhoeven, lectured, and uh, I understand that he covered the First paragraph on page seventy seventy one. Um, and we'll start on the second paragraph then. And the Chinese, if you look to the left hand side, it's line four of the Chinese and it says Chang Shi Yi. We'll do, we'll go down one, two, three, four lines in the Chinese. So let's do that. If, you, if, if you're not familiar with reading Chinese, uh, then it doesn't hurt to kind of let the sounds go in your ear and it's even more fun to try them, try them on your tongue. You can use the, the romanization, the ABCs there that spell it out for you. And if you want to really get into it and really have fun, try the tones. Notice that every one of those syllables has got a, a line over it. Either it goes like this, or it goes like this, or it goes like that, or it goes like that. Those are the four tones of Mandarin. So uh, you can try it and see what it's... You know, uh, uh, one in every four people in the world speaks this language, so it doesn't hurt us to, to kind of give it a flavor, give it a taste, see what it feels like in your mouth. Cheng shi zhi yi Chang 清修处理不推不转不推不转成坚固力得坚固力得坚固力勤共诸佛勤共诸佛于佛教法能如说行all right, let's look over to the right. We're now in the second paragraph, once he's accomplished worldly wisdom. Here we go. Once he has accomplished worldly wisdom, he knows living beings' seasons, and he knows their capacities. Equipped with the adornments of repentance and reform, he diligently cultivates Benefiting self while benefiting others. 
He therefore accomplishes the adornments of repentance and reform. In the midst of these practices, he diligently cultivates transcendence without retreating or deflecting and accomplishes the power of stability. Once he has acquired the power of stability, he diligently makes offerings to the Buddhas. He is thus able to speak and to practice the Dharma as the Buddhas taught it. Okay. For those of you who are here for the first time at a sutra lecture, or maybe uh, you haven't been for a while, um, what we're doing is we're going through a text. We're going through the words the Buddha spoke. And this is a big one. This is a big text. And you can look at the collection of books covering that wall. And then you take a look at the collection of books covering that wall. And uh, that one over there, the big brown volumes, one third of that are the words of the Buddha. That is to say they're called sutras. Sutras mean scripture. And that big collection is divided up into three. One is the words of the Buddha. One is the commentaries to the words of the Buddha made by people who came later who wanted to give their opinion about what it meant, what the Buddha said. And one third of it is the kind of the rules for the community, how to establish the Sangha, how to bring in new monks and nuns, how to go out for alms, how to do things in the, in the Dharma way so that you can do things without increasing your view of self, for example, increasing your ego, how to do things smoothly so as, as, a, as a, a rosebud Indian said, you slip right through. How to do things so you slip right through. So you don't get caught in the traps of ego or low self-esteem. You don't increase your bad karma. That's what that third part is. So, words of the Buddha, commentaries, and the organizing rules for the community. Sutras, Shastras, and Vinaya, it's called. So, okay, above the words of the Buddha, in that part of the, this is called a canon. In that part, uh, there's something like 1,300 texts that have the word sutra at the end. Can you imagine? 1,300 different books that say sutra that are attributed to the Buddha. And interesting thing for people who study text and for who, people who, who have, for example, look at the Bible, for example. Um, Old Testament, New Testament. How old is he? He's how old? How old? Three, four? More than that? He's, he's the youngest guy here. Boy, that's great. I'm glad you're here. If he gets really tired, maybe we can get him a cookie in the kitchen or something. Yeah. Glad you came. Yeah. Welcome. We have a young, a young sutra listener tonight. Yeah. me tofu. Oh, and there's another one coming in the back. Good. Wow. Good. Tell them there's music coming later so they can hear some, some music later. 
Anyway, those 1,300 texts that are said to be uh, words the Buddha spoke. And uh, in the Christian world, uh, in the world that, of the Abrahamic religions, there's controversy among, and that has been from the beginning, among what actually came from the words of Jesus the Christ, if you're studying the, the Gospels and, and uh, among the various translations of the Hebrew Scriptures, there's, there has been additions and subtractions. And, uh, in the Buddhist world, it's, there's not so much debate about the texts that actually are supposed to have come from the Buddha's mouth. So, among those, we, we won't talk about that tonight because that's another whole lecture and it's, it's fascinating and I personally have spent a lot of time looking at sutras but we have picked to lecture on, picked to explain uh, a very large one called the Avatamsaka, Flower Adornment and this is one tiny portion of it, little tiny piece of the Avatamsaka, Huayanjing, Da Fang Guangfu Huayanjing. This is one chapter called the Shridipin, the Ten Grounds and it's one piece of the Shridipin, it's one ground one, the first portion of which there are ten altogether. So we're looking at just a little sliver of the Flower Adornment Sutra, which is indeed one piece of the whole Avatamsaka Sutra. So that's kind of to give us a compass bearing, what we're actually looking at. And the topic of this particular slice, of this particular sutra, is the Bodhisattva path. Bodhisattva is a Sanskrit word which means awakened, being, somebody who is already awakened. And it also refers to people who awaken others. So it can be about bodhisattvas or about what bodhisattvas do. So their identity and also their function. And we're in the first part of that text. And so you could say the topic of this first part of the text is how to make bodhisattvas, how awakened beings are made, how they wake up. And uh, the first ground bodhisattva is by no means uh, an expert. He's not home or she's not home yet. There's still a long road ahead. But uh, the interesting thing about this part of the text is it takes us into the mind of the Bodhisattva. It's very much like uh, an X-ray camera showing us what's going on inside the Bodhisattva as he or she behaves, goes out and does things. So it's really interesting to get a, uh, an inside story of what Bodhisattvas are like, how they think, how they behave, what do they do. Um, why is that interesting? It's interesting because the Buddha began as person, a human, not a deity, not a divinity, not a avatar or a, somebody who came from beyond beyond. You know, the Buddha's. Uh, the road the Buddha walked to become the Buddha is really accessible. It's really clear that it's not specially mm, different from any of us. And so the, when we get to the Bodhisattva here in the Sutra, 
the source of it is potentially your experience, my experience. And that's why it's so much fun to dig into these texts because you can connect the dots really clearly between what's going on in your life, my life today, and how a bodhisattva deals with it. So it becomes closer to us than farther away. And I really believe that's the Buddha's intent. That it was to give a kind of a roadmap to behaving like a bodhisattva. It's not the case that the bodhisattva is there to point to the heavens and say, it's all going to be good. It's, it is the case that this is there for when times get bad, when times are tough, when, times, when the wind blows hard, when the waves swamp the boat. This is, the, this is what the sutras are for. Um, and, mind you, they're also for when things are good. But um, it's, it's really essentially built, it's, it's a roadmap of how bodhisattvas behave when, when times get tough. Okay, so that's enough maybe of an introduction. Um, I'm going to flip back to page 60, 66 and 67. I'm sorry, my mistake, 68 and 69. What has happened here is the Bodhisattva um, saw living beings. Living beings are people that we run into all the time in the sutra, and that would be us. Bodhisattva sees that living beings are having trouble and can't get their way out, can't see through the darkness to the light inside that's going to illuminate the right thing to do. And the Bodhisattva gets, feels compassion. He says, yep, yep, been there. And I feel it. I feel with them. I'm going to figure out what to do. And so he, because of this compassion, he starts out by giving. Says that he brings forth a mind of renunciation. And says further enlarges the scope of his search for all worldly and world-transcending beneficial matters, is never tired or weary of it. So that's the first thing we found out a couple weeks ago, that the Bodhisattva, when he sees that people are suffering and understands that that's him or her, there's no, different, no difference between them, he sets out on a search to make it hurt less. And he starts to give. Giving is the way he does, and the way he does it. Um, because the Bodhisattva is giving away, he gets energized. It says, untired, unwearying. And once he's untired and unwearying, look at what it says last week. His mind is no longer anxious about sutras and shastras. Because he's no longer anguish, uh, anxious, he accomplishes the wisdom of sutras and shastras. Those are two words we just heard. Sutras are words of the Buddha. Shastras are commentaries to the Buddha, to the words the Buddha said. So the sutras come from the awakened Buddha with great wisdom. Commentaries come from people who wanted to talk about that. Why would sutras and shastras make you anxious? I guess it depends on what you've been taught about them. 
My first experience with sutras and shastras came with, from Master Shrenhua at um, Gold Mountain Monastery. I'd been studying them at, at uh, UC Berkeley and had taken them as basically uh, Chinese lessons, but I didn't really think that the sutras had much to say to me because I was approaching it academically, and that's valid and, and important, but it only answers the question, what does it say? That kind of study doesn't answer the question, what does it mean? So when I got to Gold Mountain, um, I started listening to Master Xuanhua lecture on sutras. And he said, these sutras are handbooks of wisdom that you can't go without for even a single day. He says, if you can understand what the sutras say, you can understand everything going on in the world around you. He says, if you really pay attention to these sutras, you will find principles that will explain issues in the newspaper. Because he says, the sutras are simply the mind of the Buddha, and the mind of the Buddha is clarity about life. So, open the sutras. said, memorize them. Put them in your eye. Put them in your mouth. Recite them. Put them in your mind. Read them. Recite them. Memorize them. said, translate them. Distribute them. said, when he, Master Hua said, when he first discovered the sutras, he read them until his eyes bled. He said, he just wouldn't stop reading. That's a little bit gruesome. That's what he said. Read them until his eyes bled. No, that's really neat. Sure. Oh, that'll, that'll get a lot of people in the door. But he, uh, you know, he did. He said he really, really loved the sutras because he said he found uh, answers to his own mind like a map that he'd never known before. Well, that's neat. And because I had never heard about sutras from anybody else, I assumed that's the way everybody took the sutras. I thought that was just the way it was. Little did I know that there's a lot of people in the world who are very anxious about sutras and shastras to the point where they're afraid of them. Believe it or not, these are the words of the Buddha. There is a tradition in the Chinese Buddhist world that says, <laughs> Absolutely. When I first heard that, I couldn't believe it. What did I say? You explain one word wrong and you fall into the hells. Okay, I won't lecture them at all. And here's the image of the Buddha setting a trap. Ah, I got another one. Ah, I lecture wrong. <laughs> you know, it's like, that's not the Buddha that I am interested in finding out about. How could it be that the Buddha set the sutras there as a trap to get people to fall into the hells? Makes no sense. Clearly, that saying, which is really prevalent, you can find that saying all over the Chinese Buddhist world, that's a saying devised by people who don't want to lecture on sutras. They don't want to open them. They don't want to bother them. So, Master Xuanhua, opening the sutras the way he did, 
and lecturing on them every single night for 90 minutes, every single night. I mean, every single night. And then twice on Saturday, twice on Sundays for 90 minutes each time. And then when he was done, he would say, Anybody have any questions? If you don't have questions, I'm going to ask you. You get it all? You get it all the first time? I doubt it. So ask. And he, he really opened it up. It was like, you know, take this sutra and like, you know, figure it out. What does it say? And he used them as, he used the text as language material. You learn Chinese, Sanskrit, you learn Pali, you learn Japanese, Korean, Tibetan, you know, all the different Buddhist canonical languages could be learned from this. And then put them into English. And then take them home and talk to mom about them. Or your brother-in-law, you know, or your kids. He made the sutras come alive. He gave them 3D so that suddenly they had dimensions and shadows and depth and size. And he clearly wanted us to, first of all, open the texts, get our fingerprints on them, dust them off, take them down off the shelf and open them up. Most monasteries, most Buddhist monasteries will have a big bookshelf full of sutras. And if you look carefully, you'll notice it's covered in dust. Nobody's touched them for years. One reason is, that's one reason, fall into the hells. Another reason is, people say, what do they say? They say, oh, it's full of Sanskrit. That's Indian language. You can't understand it. Nobody understands it. That's all ancient, foreign language. Let's see now. He can give up and see. The Buddha, the, the Bodhisattva, using compassionate mind of great renunciation, wishing to protect and rescue all living beings, enlarges the scope of his search for all worldly and world transcending beneficial matters. That's good English. Pretty clear. Bodhisattva likes to help people. He wants to increase his opportunity to help people. That's English. Every sentence of the, the Ten Grounds, by and large, comes right out of middle America in terms of approachability. There's nothing unapproachable or incomprehensible about this. So, there's another one. There's another reason to fear sutras and shastras, which is, oh, you can't understand them. It's all Sanskrit. Not. There are Sanskrit terms, certainly, because it originally came from Indian language, but you can approach them. There's a set number. Once you learn them, they come, up, come back over and over and over again. Okay, that's, that's number two. The third scary thing that you hear when you touch sutras in the Chinese Buddhist world, this is also true in the Vietnamese Buddhist world, is they say, oh, it's just all philosophy. It's so abstract. You just can't understand it without a commentary. So just read the commentaries. Don't bother with the sutras. Read the commentaries. That's approachable. Well, I've done that. For example, um, my, for my master's thesis, my master's thesis, I read a commentary called the, the Treatise on the Great Wisdom that Crosses Over, the Dajra Dulun, Mahaprajna Paramita Shastra. 
And it's wonderful. It's written by Nagarjuna Bodhisattva and a translator named Kamarajiva. And it's amazing. I mean, it's like an encyclopedia of knowledge that from the 6th century, 5th and 6th century. And those two uh, translators and commentators seem to know everything about the world. There's medicine in there. There's astrology in there. There's knowledge of all the other religions going on in there. And there's also explanations of the text. And that's good. But it's not the Buddha's words. Precisely. It feels really different than the sutras, the Buddhist world. So, Master Hua said, you know, I don't lecture on the commentaries. I lecture the sutras. It's not that I don't read the commentaries, but I don't lecture from them. And then he would say, you know, you're qualified to find out what the Buddha said. Just open it up and read it. See what you think. So he bypassed the commentaries. And by doing that, he got flack from the Chinese Buddhist world that is in the habit of looking at commentaries. Japanese do it too. Koreans do it too. Vietnamese do it too. You go to the commentaries. You don't go to the sutra. Master Shenhua said, you know, read with the words the Buddha spoke. You'll find you can understand them just fine. Use your own wisdom to engage the Buddha's teaching. And as far as I knew, that's the way everybody taught. Mm-mm. Not. Not. It's not the way. You have to go to the commentaries and then you do it feeling like, oh, this is really deep philosophy. right? What's philosophical and abstract about the Bodhisattva saying, you know, I'm going to increase my ability to benefit living beings because they're hurting a lot. Like that goes right to the heart. So, okay. I'm making the point that in the Buddhist world that I encountered, I didn't realize that I was getting a reformer's point of view. I was getting a critique of the 1800 1800 year old Chinese Buddhist tradition. I didn't realize that that was when Master Shrenhua, our teacher and founder, opened up the text, that what I was getting was something fresh. Something fresh. So that's what I, what I absorbed for the first 18 years of my studying of the Dharma. And also uh, because Master Shrenhua um, came from Manchuria. And in Manchuria, there was a very, very lively religious world. A religious world in which Taoism, Confucianism, teachings of virtue, all of the Minjian Xinyang, all of the various local religions were all mixed in and part of the teaching. So, Shurfu would lecture on the text and he would bring in Stories from the Romance of the Three Kingdoms, San Guo Yan Yi. And he would bring in Lao Tzu, Dao De Jing, the, the book of, the, of the, the Way and Its Virtue, the Dao De Jing of Lao Tzu. And he would bring in the Analects of Confucius. And we would hear all this incredible, wonderful, thick, rich Chinese culture as illustration, because this is part of what Shifu learned as he was growing up. 
And we would get these great stories. And then, of course, he knew all of the Tian Tai Jiao Guan, the, tian, the traditional Chinese way of lecturing all the stories that he loved. And we would get those as well. And then he was also a poet. And he would use poetry to explain the text. He would write compositions. And then when he'd get to a certain point, he would just say, now, what does this mean to you? And challenge you to engage the text and to make sense of it. So I have to say that I, my entire education in the living tradition of Buddhist texts had no anxiety whatsoever. But I can appreciate how people might think, oh, I'm not going to worry about what the Buddha said because I won't understand it anyway. Right. So here I am. You know, I'm grew up in the age of television in Midwestern America, in Ohio, watching Mickey Mouse Club, watching baseball, and football, and basketball, and hockey, and golf, and bowling, and tennis. There was no track and field on TV, but I watched tennis. And, you know, all that and all the advertisements that was part of every t TV show. I was the generation where network TV first began. ABC, NBC, CBS. That was it. That was all there was back then. Um, so I'm a product of my culture. And here I am, Dan Zida, lecturing on Buddhist sutras. You know, how, what nerve? Why do I think I'm qualified to explain a Buddhist text to anybody? What do I know? Well, you could say that. I mean, that's a legitimate challenge compared to the elder monks of the Tiantai school who know how these texts have been lectured for mm, 1,100 years. The styles of the Tiantai Zong were established in the Song Dynasty, 12th century, 10th century. Right? The Tang ended and the Song began in the 10th and 11th century. And these teachings have been around in this form all that time. They were mostly codified, codified in the Ming, which is like 1400, but it's been around a long time in this way, right? And so here I am. You know, bringing in my baseball and advertising background, Chevrolets and the Detroit Tigers, you know, Budweiser beer and football, score, touchdown, and that's my background, you know. So, do I have the right to open these up and say, come on everybody, let's look into the sutra? Well, I think so. Why? Because... On his authority, the sutras are medicine, they're handbooks, they're like doc files, not, not word doc, but the doc files meaning the manuals that you get as PDFs to, to use your software. That's what the sutras are for. That's their function. Now mind you, this, these are the words of the Buddha and they... It's not just a doc file. You don't read it and chuck it in the drawer. But their function 
is to illuminate your life. How could that be? One reason is if you think about where they came from. The sutras completely came from the Buddha's meditative state. In a word, they came from samadhi. Samadhi is a Sanskrit word meaning a state of concentration and purity that comes from his awakened mind. And that awakened mind is a human mind that applied a code of conduct called precepts. So essentially, it's an ethical samadhi as a result of behavior according to wisdom's guidelines. That's the way to talk about it. So people who know the way the Dharma works are hearing me go, wisdom, samadhi, precepts, right? Prajna, samadhi, shila. In other words, let's do it backwards. Who I am determines how quiet my mind will be. How quiet my mind is determines how deeply I see into what's really going on. From that place, the Buddha explained the sutras. So, who I am as a person is the first step. And that's called precepts. And here's what's really interesting. Is the precepts the Buddha outlined are in every way the same as the Ten Commandments brought down by Moses from Mount Sinai. The Quran's ethical teaching of Islam and the yoga aphorisms of Patanjali, one of the Vedas found at the heart of Hinduism. So all these major religions in the world all agree on the fundamental ethical background. That's where you start. To say it in a word is who you are as a person matters the most. Then you go and meditate or bow or use whatever practice you do. Your mind gets quiet. And then from that still mind, from the water being very, very quiet, you look down you see what's at the bottom of the lake. You see all the way to the, to the sand at the bottom of the ocean. You see to the bottom of the mind. And the Buddha reports that what's there at the bottom of the mind is pretty much the same for every living thing. That the human mind at root hasn't changed a lot. There are founding basic principles at the heart of the human experience that are the same for men, for women, East, West, ancient, modern, and you'd assume into the future. That it's the nature of the mind is pretty much the same. And from that still place, he said, ah, here's the root. It'll manifest out as the branch tips of your experience. The phenomena are the branch tips. Go down to the root, you find the noumena, the principles at the heart of it. They're invisible, just like the roots of a tree. When you look at a tree, you're not looking at the roots. You're looking at the what's above the ground. But you know for sure that half of the tree is below the ground. That's what allows the part above the ground to stand strong, to feed, to survive the winds, right? When the winds blow, the Buddha said, yeah, principles, Tao Li, right? Principles of the Tao are what allow you as a human being to make your way through life without getting blown off your feet. How to deal with things and come out right. 
There is a right to come out. And that's according to principle. So, that's what I think the sutras are. And that's why I think Shurfu said, you know, if you understand one part, explain one part. If you understand ten parts, explain ten parts. But open them and explain them. Use your wisdom. If you don't explain them, your wisdom won't grow. If you explain them, your wisdom will grow. So, that's why I dare sit here and, and imitate a sutra lecture. Um, now, I've, I've said this before and I say it with great affection and reverence. I've seen the traditional way of lecturing on sutras and I have to tell you, it breaks your heart. It breaks your heart because nobody can stand it for long. The traditional way of lecturing on sutras that has come down to us from the Song and the Ming is so dry and so boring and so dull and so lifeless and so formal that only people who, number one, aren't paying attention or their minds are already dead and asleep can stand it for long. It's just so dry. It's directly from a museum. Here's what happens. I, I won't tell you who he is because I really revere this elder. And he was the person. I won't even tell you where he's from because you'd know who it is. He was the one who's supposed to be holding the lineage of the teaching school. And occasionally people would ask him to lecture and he would he would see, he just, he loved to be invited. Bless his heart. And he would get out there and before you can hear the first word of the sutra, you've got to go through about 40 minutes of preliminaries. You've got to request the master and there's a formal way to do that with the right hymns. And the, there are two monks, each with bells, and they lead down... And this is going to happen tomorrow morning at City of 10,000 Buddhas. And I'll be there at 6 a.m. doing this. But it's not for a lecture, it's for precepts. But you ring the bell, ding, ding, dong, ding, dong, dong, ding. And you have to get the bells right so one is higher, one is lower. Ding, dong, dong, ding. You get them just right. And then the monk goes, That's the opening, right? Then they invite him in. And they come down and invite him up. And he has to offer up three sticks of incense. And he has to bow just right. And then he takes his seat. Then they start. They invite the in. And it just goes on. That's about seven minutes. And then after that, then they do this. Opening the verse. Then you have to do the praise of the sutra. And it's according to the sutra. It's different. Then you have to... Uh, he has to do his special preparation. And then he has to say, 
All of you elders from all the different monasteries, go All of you greatly wise. He has to go through the formal thing, and it goes on, and it goes on. And you look around the room, and there are three or four elders who, no matter what the teacher says, they'll be there because they love him. And it's great that they do. And there's nobody under 70 in the room. There are the monks and nuns who couldn't get off duty, who in their ding, ding, dong, and it's, there's nobody there because 40 minutes have gone by and he hasn't touched the sutra. He's doing it, what? The formal, official, received way that has been done for hundreds of years. And you can see, because this monk, he's, he's bright, he's alive, he can't wait to get into the text, but he has to. He's got to wait. And they get through, and then finally he's there with his palms together, and it's his time to speak, and he turns the page, and he goes, you know, we have to have great affinities to come together on this wonderful auspicious day. He has to say the good blessings talk and the, you know, and why? Because he's 90 some years old and he's been doing this since, you know, 1940 maybe. And he doesn't get invited very often. He's thrilled that people would invite him. And by this time, an hour and a half has gone by and he's lectured a couple lines, you know, and you go, it's heartbreaking. Why? If the world didn't have this elder, it would be a poorer place. This is a living link to a tradition that has been in the world all these years. But ask anybody under 30 to come in and listen to the sutras and they won't come back a second time. They'll be there for an anthropological research project. They'll be there, you know, they'll, they'll put their recorder on their seat, put the tape recorder down on the seat and then go check out YouTube videos for sure. You know, it's like there's nothing happening except the formality. And I say it's heartbreaking. Why? Because I would do anything to keep this in the world. And yet, nobody's going to listen to the sutras. What are you going to do? If you want this to be helpful in your life, that's not the way. So, my tradition, that is to say, what I learned from Master Shrenhua, was, oh, we're on a plane heading for the Philippines. Okay, you know what time it is? Sutra lecture time. Who's lecturing? You, Guajan, turn around. Let's hear it. What have you memorized? Shrivu, <laughs> Shrivu, I was asleep. <laughs> you know, that's right, now, you know. So I turn around and I lectured anybody in earshot on the airplane. You know, he says, 
That's not bad, but you missed a word. He's like, he knew what I'd memorized and had it down cold. And I, you know, okay, okay, you know, that's not bad. Who's next? You know, we're on a bus. The bus pulls over at the roadside rest. We have 20 minutes before we're going to go. Okay, sit down over the picnic table. Whose turn is it? Let's hear it. What have you memorized? You know, Shurfu, every chance that people were together was an opportunity to rehearse the Buddha's wisdom. And then he would say, you know, okay, if you don't lecture, I'll kneel here until somebody lectures. I've seen Master Hua kneeling down with his palms together in front of the empty Dharma seat, waiting for somebody to stand up and lecture. You know, when your teacher's kneeling in front of you, you go, okay, okay, sure, please don't kneel. I'll, please, I'll, I'll lecture. <laughs> and then you get up and you I, I don't have anything to say, but I, I can't stand to see my teacher kneeling. And you get the impression that Shifu valued the wisdom of the sutras, putting it in people's mouths and their eyes and their hearts. So that's the tradition. And um, it's nothing if it's not lively and full of human experience. So a sutra then is not something to be anxious about. It's something to um, try out. Now, granted, not every sentence of every page of the sutra is going to be easily comprehensible because the sutras are full of stuff. I chose to um, open up the Ten Grounds chapter of the Avatamsaka Sutra because it's the most uh, systematic explanation of the Bodhisattva path in the whole Avatamsaka. And the Avatamsaka is the most systematic and thorough explanation of the Bodhisattva path in all of the Mahayana. Um, this is the text that you turn to if you want to find out about bodhisattvas. And so what's so neat about a bodhisattva is here in the text. If you had to, if I had to answer what, why that is something I'm interested in, it's because uh, bodhisattvas are heroic. And I love hero stories. I love stories of people who um, expected more than just the ordinary. More, not to say greedy more, not more in quantity, but people who, let's say, I'll just talk about myself. When I, I grew up uh, loving to read, I was a great fiction reader. I loved to read. I had a reading chair in my room and I would just launch my uh, my imagination and my fantasy into every book I read. Of course, some were better than others, but um, I understood in reading that there was always more going on than what I saw on the surface. And I loved literature that could take me into the heart of human experience, but also beyond the phenomena. There was always clear that there was like a curtain between what I was seeing and what was actually going on. And 
I remember uh, one of the very first books I read that opened up to uh, Asian wisdom was called Lives of the Bengal Lancers. Lives of the Bengal Lancers. That's it's uh, a British soldier of the Raj, the uh, the occupying imperialist colonial forces in in India who probably like me uh, realized that there was so much more than what we learned in school. And this, the, the, I don't have the name of the man who wrote, we could find it quickly, uh, the man who wrote Lives of the Bengal Lancers. He went out of the fenced-in British compound into the streets of Lucknow and Pune and Mumbai and researched the experience of yogis and fakirs and swamis. And I remember being completely, I had my world stopped. He completely blew my mind when he was talking about this swami, this yogi, who could, through his practice of yoga, take four colored cloths, red, blue, yellow, and green, swallow them down and then bring them back in any order you wanted. You want green first? He could bring it back up. Here's green. You want red next? Bring it back up. Red. And I was going, oh, I don't know anybody who can do that. I have friends who can almost dunk a basketball, but I don't know anybody who can bring back a green cloth or a red cloth in the order that, they, that you choose. That's control of something that I didn't know anybody could control. Your autonomic digestion and peristalsis, you can control that. It's like, whoa, how amazing. So I, I was fascinated right away. You know, gee, somebody can control things. There's more going on than I knew. And of course, that's gross and weird, but, you know, it's like, that's cool, gross and weird power, control. Who knew that was possible? You know. So what else is going on? And it was right at that point that I dug into the Chinese language at the same time. So I was always fascinated by getting behind the surface. When I met the sutras, it was full of people who were not satisfied with the status quo and who wanted to furthermore help help people get past their pain. That caught me. So, here's the Bodhisattva. We can get to our text. 69. The Bodhisattva uses a compassionate mind of great renunciation. He wants to rescue and protect all living beings. And he enlarges the scope of his search for all worldly and world-transcending beneficial matters. He's never tired or weary. He realizes an unwearying, untired mind. Okay, so we know that he's a benefactor. He can renounce. He wants to find worldly beneficial things, world transcending beneficial things. And he's not tired or weary of doing that. Because of this lack of fatigue, he turns to the sutras with great energy to find out 
what he can learn from them. He's not anxious about it. He sees the sutras as there to help him, not to help him fall into the hells, not to help him be mystified or to yield to commentaries, but to use his own wisdom. Okay, there we go. He sees the sutras as storehouses of practical advice. They're going to open up her mind for her. So the Bodhisattva goes to the sutras. Turn the page. Once he acquires the wisdom from the sutras, he's good at estimating what should be done and what should not be done. Okay? Practical, expedient wisdom is in the hands of the Bodhisattva. I should do this. I shouldn't do that. Now, he acts in that way that's appropriate and timely towards superior, average, and inferior living beings, and he does so in a matter that works. What they like, meaning according to beings' habits, according to their what they can accept. When he's eating dinner in India, he doesn't use his left hand. For example, when he's eating palmian, he knows how to use chopsticks. That's what it means, right? Ways that a bodhisattva is able to mix and blend with living beings so that what they don't notice what's different about him, but they see what he does or she does so that they accept and trust and open up to a bodhisattva. Because the bodhisattva's intent is to show a way out of habits that hurt. The bodhisattva's intent is to model a better way. One that won't lead to more confusion and pain. And for sure, for sure, he teaches by example. Not at the end of a wagging finger. You'd better do this. Because I'm a bodhisattva and I know best. Mm-mm. That's not what living beings like. Bodhisattva is a superb psychotherapist. Totally empathetic. Understands the way to teach. Um, superior, average, and inferior living beings is not a judgment. It's not a value judgment. It's not based on the Bodhisattva's likes or dislikes. It talks about shangan, wholesome qualities. Kushala mula in Sanskrit. Wholesome capacities to live in a harmless way. Superior, average, and inferior. Um, let's use some worldly standards. Coordinated athletes. You'd say, oh, he's a better basketball player. This person can hit 10 out of 10 serves over the net into the court. Never double faults. This person can dunk a basketball. This person bowled a 300 game. This person hit two, count you, two holes in one at Pebble Beach. Superior, okay? They're really good athletes. 
However, if you ask that person to fix an engine, to tune up their carburetor, can't do it. So, middling or inferior in terms of mechanical skills. Wow, this person gives them a calligraphy pen and they can illuminate a manuscript. But they're not athletes and they're not mechanics. So, those are the qualities. What about this person? They're not athletes, they're not mechanics, they're not artists, but they can listen. If you want to talk to them, you feel like you're talking to your best friend. That would be a wholesome root, a wholesome quality. This person doesn't talk very much, but if you see what they do, they're always on the right side of the issue. They always come out right. This person has virtue. This person never, ever gossips. They don't talk about others. This person doesn't discuss other shortcomings. You don't notice them much, but you notice that they never use profanity. Their words are harmless, easy to listen to. They never say a word that burns the heart. They never say four-letter words. Right? All these different qualities of people that would be considered superior in one person, middling or inferior, if you notice, everybody has a blend of good roots and negative qualities too. The, that's how superior, middling and inferior is meant here. It's uh, from the bodhisattva's point of view regarding wisdom and compassion. That's how superior, middling, and inferior. And it's kind of like saying, what would it be like? It's not, it's not like the caste system. This is a Brahman. So this person is obviously superior. This is an outcast. They're obviously inferior. Not that at all. It's not from social status, income, name, birth, clothes, possessions, size of the house, bank account, not a bit. That's not what the Buddha is talking about. It's talking about superior, middling, or inferior. Here has to do with how much covering there is over the nature. A superior person is somebody who hears, as Confucius would say, if you lift up one corner, they can lift up the other three. They get it easily. They're not covered. They're not afflicted. Their temper is really cool. Right? You can't get them angry. That's a superior person who has good roots. Why? Because they are not so covered with what the Buddha called wuming, ignorance. There's less. Right? These are mostly people who pay attention to their parents or their siblings. They're not contentious, self-made loners, misunderstood. Right? These are not people that you'll, you'll find a biopic made out of them because they're loners. Out, he didn't kowtow to no man. You know, just how many westerns are made about people who are basically sociopaths? Right? That's not superior qualities. The Bodhisattva has the ability to look at a person and know their qualities. 
who know them. Okay, thereupon the Bodhisattva accomplishes worldly wisdom. Now, um, let me tell you what I did yesterday. I had an experience yesterday that I can confidently say not very many people have had. I got to sit on a panel of nine other monks among them the monks with the oldest number of years in robes in America while 24 individuals came in front of us and knelt and received the precepts of bhikshus and bhikshunis. They joined the Buddha's Sangha. In some cases, after trying for seven years to do it. The shortest was probably three and a half years. 24 people, 21 women and three men. Yesterday, got up on the platform and accomplished successfully becoming members of the Buddhist Sangha. The last time that was done in City of 10,000 Buddhas was 2004, five years ago, and that was the 11th time. This was the 12th time it's been done at City of 10,000 Buddhas. My year was the first time it was done, 1976. This was the 12th. And I'd been the, uh, the Upadhyaya, the the preceptor for the last five times since 95 and uh, to see the light shining from these people as they cross that platform it, it's heart stopping in a in a wonderful way because there everyone has abundant life stories. There's nobody who gets up on that platform for fun or to try it out, you know, or with hesitation or with reservations. You can't get that far without being committed. It's like bread dough that's had all the bubbles. Now, that's clay. Let's use that analogy. It's like clay that's ready for the fire. All the bubbles have been beaten out of that clay. You know how you throw clay on a wheel? Potters beat the clay before they make it into a pot or a figure or an image. These people have all the bubbles beaten out of them. They're, they can hold the temperature. They can hold the fire. Amazing. The, the women in particular um, are... I don't, I don't know the story, but I guess most of them have had families. Um... Some of them, the oldest is 60-some. The youngest was probably 24. Um, so they've had plenty of life experience. Um, had husbands, lost husbands. Um, some have never been married. But they have trained, the women have trained for a minimum of four years some more, and they are really ready to join the Buddhist family. 
and you ask them these questions there on the platform. And the last one that they say before they get the precepts is, uh, it's, it's done like that at that volume. You know. Are you a woman who has made the great resolve for Bodhi? Yes, I am a woman who has made the great resolve for Bodhi, they say. And it comes from their toes. It comes from their cells and their blood. You can hear it. And they, it's so wonderful. And over in the corner, the, it's traditionally the monks are the ones who do the last passage, but they've already passed the nuns already. And the nuns are so proud and so happy because they have been working with these women since they, you know, they were, uh, they women who kind of showed up one day, bowed a little bit and listened to a lecture, or, you know, had lunch or something. And they've gone all the way through to being trainees and, and uh, retreatants and then at some point novices, Ramanerikas. And then all the way through they commit to the training and then yesterday they took the complete precepts. And it's, they're only, you know, we only see, the monks only see the result. They're ready. And they come up three by three. There were 21 uh, in all. And they came from, my goodness, they came from Vietnam, a lot from Malaysia, Taiwan, from Latin America, from China, Hong Kong, and one from Bahamas, Nassau, the Bahamas, Caribbean. And uh, they, it's like they are so shining, they're transparent. You can see right through to their hearts. Maybe, you know, I'm projecting a bit, but it's, there's, they have been working so hard for this moment when they become bhikshunis and really join the Buddha's family, that they're shining with light. Their hearts are on display. And you, you don't get there without wanting it a lot to, to really be a Buddhist nun. And uh, they, it's, it's hard. It's really hard to get there. And this moment is the, the moment when they actually get across the line and everybody did nobody some some years there's strange things that happen during the precept platform during the the ordination time but everybody made it and uh, it was very wonderful to see and uh, I was talking to the other monks uh, Ajanamaro and Pasano from from Abhayagiri they they take part and we do a Mahayana Theravada joint ordination, which is historic. Uh, it's rare that that's ever happened. And we were saying, you know, this is kind of like the launching pad. Where, where are those rockets going to land? They're taking off. How many will get to Buddhahood? You know, all of them. We hope, you know. So it's quite wonderful to be in that, in the place where you can see the the effort, you can see the work in humanity. They're like uh, sculptures of 
flesh and blood that's being shaped into bhikshus and bhikshunis and ideally into arhats or bodhisattvas or buddhas carved out of human experience, human consciousness. So I say it's... it's uh, I was able to sit in a place where not many people have sat, just numerically. There aren't that many people, monks, who who would be in that seat to say, you are qualified to step into the Buddhist Sangha. So I, I am totally appreciative of the rare opportunity that I had to sit there and humble in the face of that. And to see it happening in America is quite wonderful. I... Um, I've told you all about in lectures past about sitting in that same seat in Shanghai, China at Longhuasi, Dragonflower Monastery when 600 Chinese men and women became bhikshus and bhikshunis back in 1990. 1990. Um, and that was extraordinary experience. But to be able to do it in California with so many rep nationalities represented and so much uh, so much promise for the Dharma in the West is quite quite marvelous so um, the world has 24 more bhikshus and bhikshunis than there was yesterday morning they took the precepts from about one they started at 2 o'clock and they finished at 5. Each one 3 by 3. And that time that they got the precepts will be with them. determines how they walk in the order when they walk around the Buddha. So tomorrow morning, we're not done yet. We have to give the Bodhisattva precepts still. And that will happen tomorrow morning. So I um, just wanted to share with you something that happened yesterday, which is um, estimating what should and should not be done towards living beings and teaching them what's appropriate and timely according to superior, average, and inferior qualities. Yesterday, uh, superior qualities were coming, were visible in the lives of these 24 individuals. So, um, let's look ahead here. We read... Once he has accomplished worldly wisdom, he knows living beings' seasons and he knows their capacities. Equipped with the adornments of repentance and reform, he diligently cultivates, benefiting self while benefiting others. He therefore accomplishes the adornments of repentance and reform. In the midst of these practices, he diligently cultivates transcendence without retreating or deflecting and accomplishes the power of stability. Um, seeing as how it's nine o'clock, I'm, I'm not going to jump into that paragraph other than just to say what we're seeing in this text is the shaping of a human mind. We're seeing somebody go progressively through the, the development of the mind and body once you fit the Dharma onto your life. Dharma is just what uh, what the Buddha taught, what he mm, reflected, because the Buddha didn't invent the Dharma, he reported the Dharma in a way. It's what he saw as he progressively uncovered his mind. 
And this, the ten grounds, this first ground, is the shaping of a human into a bodhisattva. Very much like you could think of it as uh, removing layers, the way you start out with a big chunk of marble and there's a, there's a beautiful statue hidden in that marble and you chip off this and chip off that and bit by bit out comes the form and you see it. That's one way to look, look at it. Or you can think of it as kind of a mold. The bodhisattva is, the future bodhisattva is kind of a amorphous mass of human consciousness and you put the mold on it and it comes out in the shape of a bodhisattva. Um, the, uh, one of the great stories that came out of yesterday was um, in the, we had eight so eight different class, eight different uh, groups of three each and in the sixth one was somebody whose name is Jin Mu Shi Mu is I, and that person is Bhikshu Hung Lu's mother, the mother of the abbot of City of Ten Thousand Buddhas. She took the precepts yesterday with her son as the Jie Mo Hushan, the confessor Acharya. And Ajahn Amaro said it. He said, wow. He said, in all the Buddhist world, that has to be the rare among the rare to be able to give the bhikshuni precepts to your mother. How special that is. That can't have happened too many times in history. So, what's that? The Buddha, his mother died. His mother died in childbirth. He gave it to his auntie who, who raised him. That's right. That's how rare it is. You know, so. so there you go. Anyway, it's great to be able to, to share that. And we'll see. You know. You'll know, you notice when you, next time you're at City of 10,000 Buddhas, the line's a little bit longer. The Sangha line. And uh, to fit yourself into the mold of a bhikshu or a bhikshuni is definitely one of the, the uh, special forms that humans can take because it's it comes out of a wish to do what the Buddha did to replicate his experience and one of the things that I very much appreciate about the Dharma and one of the things that caused me to to actually leave home and, and do it try to do it myself was the realization that that it was still possible that um, the Buddha taught the Dharma in the sutras and also by example with the full expectation that people would completely replicate his experience. And there aren't many religions that can say that. That's why it's a Tao. It's a path. The idea is we can walk it should we choose to do so. All right. Now, it's nine o'clock and um, usually we go to 9.30 but since um, I have a special situation which is um, this time tomorrow I'm going to be in the air probably over Guam 
or Solomon Islands or somewhere. Maybe maybe goes north. I don't know where the plane flies, but I'm heading to China tomorrow at 3 p.m. And before I get there, I have to go up to Ukiah to do the Bodhisattva precepts and then turn around and go right back to San Francisco and get on the airplane. So um, there's, I'm not going to get much sleep tonight. And uh, it would be helpful if I could get a little more. So um, I'm going to stop the lecture now and um, transfer the merit and tell you a little bit about what's coming up in activities so you can put it on your calendar. So on your sutra, in your sutra there's an insert and the transference of merit is there. Transference of merit is, is interactive. It's meant to uh, be a, a vehicle a vessel for your wishes, your wishes for goodness. And you're invited to make a wish, to send out the goodness that comes from investigating the sutras, send it as far as your mind can, can travel. That's how far the merit goes. Last Saturday, I was down in Los Angeles for the Vegetarian Conference, VegSource.com Healthy Lifestyle Expo, and uh, Sam and Ping got, were down there. We had a 
wonderful time with uh, our old friends. And John Robbins was really inspiring, and Dr. McDougall was really flinty, and, and uh, Joel Furman talked really fast, Dr. Furman, and, and uh, Ra- Rip Esselstyn, the son of Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn, who's now become well known for his Engine 2 diet. Rip Esselstyn is the guy who uh, went down to the firehouse at the University of Texas campus in Austin and turned these big, tough, six foot four Texas firefighters into vegans <laughs> and made them really like the meatless, dairy free food that he cooks. And now, in one case, he, re- he showed the stories, he showed the faces. Guy who uh, had cholesterol of 339, dropped his cholesterol in a mat, what, 28 days, he gave him a challenge, dropped his cholesterol to 190. And his LDL dropped down from 40 to 20, something like that, the bad cholesterol count. So Rip has done more than uh, save lives of the people the firemen serve, he saved the lives of the firemen. And he said something fascinating. Uh, Rip has been on lots of, like Good Morning America and The Daily Show and all kinds of stuff recently. He said, you know, we firemen, we go out and we do turn hoses on burning buildings. And we do pull cats out of trees. But he said, 80% of the calls that we get come directly from what people put in their mouths. The American diet is the cause of 80% of the fire calls that we get. He showed pictures of some big, beefy guy laying flat on his back on the street where he shouldn't be in the crosswalk, covered with a blanket, with his grocery bags torn and scattered all around him because he's just had a coronary. Right? He's coming to go into the grocery store, had a heart attack on the way back, carrying the food bags, and he's lying out there on the street with his big stomach, covered by, surrounded by medical techs who are trying to revive him. 80% of the calls he gets, the firehouse, come from what people eat because it kills them. The American diet is killing us. 80%, four out of five calls, come from people whose arteries can't take it anymore. How amazing. So, that was, that was fascinating, you know, to have this frontline, handsome fireman. He's an Ironman triathlete champion, you know. Handsome guy out there just saying, come on, folks, you can do it. And showing you how to cook. His, the, the recipes in the Engine 2 diet cookbook looked really good really good all free of meat and dairy so that was fun Um, Marty will be here next week and the following week to lecture on the Avatomsica so do come and listen in Marty is going to bring that alive the text because he listened to Master Shrenhua as long as I did and knows how to lecture Um, on the 15th of November, Joanne Shenandoah is going to be here.
Joanne is an Iroquois woman. She's a composer. I mentioned last week, last time, she's a doctorate from Syracuse University. She's a multi-multi-Grammy nominee and Grammy Award winner. And uh, she's happily married to Doug George Ganantillo, who's a Mohawk Indian journalist, author. They're going to be out here for the Native American Film Festival, which is happening, I think, that week. And Joanne has offered to share with us a real Native American Thanksgiving blessing. The fact that we're getting them here on Thanksgiving that week is incredible because we're going to hear about the real Native American Thanksgiving. What are they thankful for? They say thank you to the earth, thank you to the sky, thank you to the sun, thank you to the moon, thank you to the animals, the birds, the fish, the crops, the grains. Incredible. Big heart. And they wind up by saying, so thank you to all living beings because we are truly one. They take it right back to the same vision as the Buddha. So that's going to happen on November 15th. It's a Sunday. It's going to be in the evening. And our, I hope DRBY will step forward and, and make it happen because I'll be, I'll be back on the 9th. I'll be, I'll be back just the week before. So we need to get the word out. But Joanne Shenandoah has been here twice before and uh, she's a friend of the monastery and vegetarian, mind you. And uh, she's a fine woman. Doug will be speaking, Doug George, about his writing and his thinking and she's invited me to share a couple songs. So I'll be uh, doing kind of the hosting and singing. So that's coming up and... Uh, I'm really glad you brought this young guy. He was paying such close attention to everything I was saying. My goodness. Talk about superior faculties. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you for coming. See you next time. Did you like the music? China to Yunjushan Junrusu, where Master Shuyin uh, ended, lived the last years of his 120-year lifespan, talking about him and the connection with Master Shenhua, and uh, going to Beijing University to lecture at the Buddha Studies Department, and then to Nankai University to talk about um, Buddhism's connection to high tech. It'll be interesting. And uh, what are you laughing at? Uh, Master Shenhua was known as an early adopter. He had the first Osborne computer. He had the first Toshiba laptop. He used whatever it took to, to propagate the Dharma. So, um, Then I'm going to Shanghai as well. And uh, we'll see you in... I'll be back on the 9th, which is, um, is a Monday... And then we'll be lecturing that next week. And then following that, Joanne Shenandoah will be coming. So. All right. So let's uh, bow to the Buddhas. And please have uh, weeks full of blessings. If we can make our hearts free of cosmic anxiety, 
right? There's all these, I'm hearing about, what do Marty call it? It's cosmic, what's the latest? There's cosmic um, anxiety. There's, that's the latest. People have really thought, they've really been hearing that 2012 was going to be the end. And they're seriously afraid, right? And uh, the Mayans themselves say, no, you know, that's really a creation of those gringos. They're just crazy up there. So it's not the case that 2012 is going to be the end of the world. We might want that to happen. We want, might want you know, the craziness to slow down in 2012, but it's not going to be a celestial event, according to the Mayans. So please you know, put our feet on the ground and work with your next thought. Keep the greed, anger, and delusion at bay. Then 2012 will just be another day. All right, see you with some great stories and pictures in two weeks.